So Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 12 through 42. This is on page 932, or 913, 913 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. And as I read, remember, we're reading God's Word. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple, the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while, and he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men And let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as his missionaries. May we see it. Amen. That'll preach. That is a great passage to preach on. It is powerful. Let me get this situated here. Uh, my name's Josh. If you don't know me, I'm one of the teaching guys here. We have a little teaching team, and I get to preach from time to time. And I get to preach this very long passage that has one central idea, and it's God. It's simple. Coming into this, though, um, the question I had on my mind as I thought about people I'm preparing this for is this. You can't do the uh, churchy or the school answer and give yourself a C right in between. You've got to choose one of these options. In this current state for you, are you courageous or are you fearful? Are you courageous or are you fearful? You've got to pick one. What's great about being a parent is you get to walk with your kids through life. One of the things I'm seeing that just kind of is a bummer as my kids get older and more aware of the world is this courage thing is really needed. As they walk out into the world and now my sons are noticing that people notice them and they've got to make decisions and decide, am I going to be full of courage or am I going to be full of fear just as we all have to make those decisions right now. And here's the reality. You could be in this circumstance that is just sick, sad, lacking in hope. And another person could be in the exact same situation. And this person could be full of courage and you could be full of fear. What's the difference? It's just how you choose to see the situation. So that's what I want from this passage. I want fearful people, fearful Christians to just get a little more courage today. I want people who have courage maybe misplaced in their own abilities and their own gifts to place their faith and trust in Jesus and get real courage that won't go away. That's what I want for today. But it's going to require a, a refocusing of our eyes. So I've got this video we're going to watch here. It's real quick. It's about a minute. But it talks about the importance of how you choose to see. If you've seen it before, don't give away any punchline. But we're going to watch this video and then we're going to come and chat about it. So it's about a minute long. Here's the video. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? Go! It's easy to miss something you're not actually looking for. Isn't that true? How many of you guys saw the bear the first go-around? You saw that moonwalking bear. Bruce Gilmore, he would probably have a very high IQ or something. 
here's the reality. You can't be focusing on two things at once. You can't be counting basketball passes and noticing this bear that you weren't expecting to begin with. And when we come to the scriptures, here's the issue. What are you looking for? Are you looking for you and your circumstances and your tiny slice of the pie that is time and history in the universe? All the while you're missing the moonwalking bear walk across the screen? This passage is about God. The book of Acts begins, I think, I don't like, the title is the Acts of the Apostles. The reality is it's the Acts of God through the Apostles. So what I want today is to see God in a mighty way. I remember the first time I was at a church where the preacher talked about this book being primarily about God. It was in Denton, Texas, Denton Bible. Tommy Nelson gets up, and I'd be going to a church that was good, and there was nothing heretical, but they just talked a lot about kind of the felt needs of the day and how to have a better life and all these sorts of things. And I go to Denton Bible, and Tommy Nelson, in his big Texas draw, gets up, and he talks about God. And I am a grown man at this point, and I just cried. We need God. My sons are going to have courage or not have courage to the extent that they see God as primary in this life. And the same is true of all of us. Do you see God in this? Or do you see yourself? Or do you get fixated on the characters? God is at work in this book. This book, this particular book of Acts is about God. Which leads, here's my big idea today. The church cannot be stopped because God cannot be stopped, slowed, or thwarted. God will never be stopped. Unstoppable God. The great Nicky Reeves just saying it. That is a true statement. He'll never be stopped. And therefore, the church will never be stopped. Why is that important? Because up to now, the book of Acts has been pretty sweet. You saw last week, it got a little hairy. Luke preached on Ananias and Sapphira, and God smoked them for being hypocrites. But the church hadn't faced any opposition as far as the watching world yet until now. And we're going to see nothing will stop God ever. So here's what I want to do. I kind of want to, kind of like this video here, I want to walk through this passage one time and see God at work. We're going to focus on God. We're going to be counting basketballs. We're focused on one thing. And then we're going to end, we're going to go back through, and we're going to ask one question of ourselves and see what God might have to say. But this passage is about God. And we see three big things about God in this passage. So if you're with me in the book of Acts there, I want to read verse 17, or verse 12 together, the first verse we have that Luke read. So if you got it, go there. It says this, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Let's stop right there. So I want to clarify just, I think, a very important point. Why are they doing signs and wonders? Here's what I think the Western way, post-enlightenment, European, mostly kind of college-educated, bright people have decided to talk about signs and wonders when they see them in Scripture. People with good intentions and good motives, but I think we've missed it. 
the signs and wonders, a lot of what you hear in apologetics today is those are there to prove God. Or in this case, maybe prove the authenticity of the apostles. Is that what God was doing? Here's the problem. I think we read the scriptures and the people we have in mind are like our New York liberal, agnostic, God-dismissing people. Those people don't exist in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Everyone is religious. You don't have to convince people back then that there's a God or gods, that there's a supernatural realm at play in this world. So the signs and wonders here are not God walking through this Middle Eastern context and kind of showing off his magic so that people will believe in him. Because everyone believed in God, everyone believed in a religious order, everyone was convinced that they were not the end-all, be-all of existence. There was other stuff going on in that play behind the scenes. And why am I hammering this so much? Because I think we miss so much if we limit signs and wonders to what we're going to use to debate somebody who doesn't believe in the resurrection. Jesus was not concerned about the New York liberal when he let his church go and perform these signs and wonders. What was he doing then? Here's my first point I want to talk about. He is redeeming in the midst of cosmic brokenness. Here's what I mean by that. All of the miracles we see, signs and wonders, whatever you'll call them, line up with the purposes God has for this creation. He could have done a lot of stuff that was kind of not even lined up with this. He could have wrangled the moon, pulled it down really close so everyone could touch it. Do you guys now believe I'm God? Look what I just did. I just pulled the moon down. That's not how this works. The signs and wonders are all related to this idea. This world is broken. And not a little broken, not like a hairline fracture, like devastatingly broken. Romans talks about it like this. The entire creation has been subjected to futility. Therefore, the entire creation is moaning or crying out for somebody to fix this. And especially people, they are crying out, Romans says, for somebody to redeem their bodies in this broken world that needs healing. So when we see this happening, what's going on is not just random, an atheist battling a Christian, and the Christian needs to do his battle by performing a miracle. Ah, there's God. It's the redeemer of the universe stepping down into the creation to renew it because the entire creation is moaning and sick and tired of this terrible, terrible brokenness we live in. That's what's at stake. That's what's going on. Now, I didn't make this up. I just promise you. But I want to give a little background. What is a redeemer? If you familiar with the Bible at all, you see the word redeemer or redemption a lot. Here's all a redeemer is. is somebody who steps in on behalf of another person to buy them out of their issue. They put themselves in a predicament, they buy them out. They put themselves into a financial bondage. In the Old Testament, they would have to then sell themselves into slavery. The Redeemer steps in, says, what's the issue? What's the problem? Let me fix it, buys them back. That's a Redeemer. What needs to be bought back in the story of the world? The Bible says all of creation. Genesis 3, everything breaks. 
It's not just a man who disobeys God or a woman who disobeys God and they get punished. Everything breaks. And God says, even the ground we work on is cursed. I just had to pray for a weed guy to come to my house. Why? Because everything is broken. So we need redemption. Not just individual redemption that gets us to heaven, but cosmic redemption that fixes everything. And what's it going to be bought back with? The Old Testament was set up to show us how this would go down. There is a lot of blood in the Old Testament. It's a bloody, bloody, bloody set of stories. And God's trying to prove a point. The only way this thing gets fixed is if blood is involved. And not just any old blood, perfect, spotless, wonderful blood of a perfect substitute. Enter Jesus. And he is our redemption. He is the redeemer. He is buying back this creation that is subjected to futility and is broken. And that's what we see here. So please don't see signs and wonders and think, I'm going to use this against an atheist. See signs and wonders and see the redeemer loves his creation and he's stepping in and he's healing blindness. And he's curing people. And some of you have cancer and some of you will be healed of cancer. Some of you are in terrible marriages. Some of you will be redeemed of that. All because God is a redeemer in the person of Jesus. And I want to walk through a couple passages to get us back to Acts. But here's what Luke says. This is Jesus kind of putting his flag on the ground saying, here's why I'm here. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So he's in the place of his Jewish heritage. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the redeemer of creation. A lot of Western Christianity is limited to the ticket I get to punch to get to heaven one day. He is redeeming all things right here, right now. He is moving on this earth. That's what he's doing. He is the redeemer, not just our ticket to heaven. How does this play into the book of Acts? Acts is written by the same guy, Luke. Here's what Luke says about the church now in light of Jesus' mission. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see the logic there? Jesus didn't come just to get us to heaven. Jesus came to set captives free, to give the blind sight, to fix everything that's broken. And then he passes the baton to the church and he says, your job title has changed. You are now witnesses to what I have done and what I will continue to do through the Spirit. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. Now many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles. What are the signs and wonders? God healing. 
and God restoring. And a man and a woman who've been married for 20 years and can't even look at each other being restored. And crippled young kids who shouldn't be crippled are given new legs. God is healing and redeeming. That's what's happening. You can't stop God. That's the title of this message. He is the redeemer. He will fix all things. Now I want to read this because the reactions get to the point of this. So if you got your Bibles there, let's read verse 13. Here's the response to this crazy new set of people. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So that they even carried out the sick into streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. Bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they all were healed. Jesus is the redeemer. He is here to heal. And the church is bearing witness to this. This is what I love. The apostles are doing these works, but it says they are not doing them by their own power. You will be my witnesses. So it's like this. They walk into a situation that needs healing and their hands or their words or their shadow or whatever it is performs a miracle and they are watching the miracle unfold in real time just like the recipient of that miracle. It's like a Spider-Man or a Superman. The first time they see their powers come to life and they're like, what is going on? You are being my witness. You are witnessing my working in this world. Last verse there says, they were all healed. Don't limit Jesus to an escape from hell and a ticket to heaven. Jesus is the redeemer of all things. The entire creation, the cosmos, is groaning, is crying, is wanting something more out of this world. And Jesus is beginning the process. He is healing. That is good news. And yet, if I'm honest, not the reality that I live in day to day. Some of you are like, yeah, sounds good up there, preacher boy. But I still got this. My husband still has this. My kid still has this. Finances are still this. And I get that. Before I was a pastor, I taught mostly kind of low-income schools. So I always had a lot of refugee students, usually from war-torn places. Bosnia was one of the places. And I remember one kid one time came up to me because I'd always preach. I'd stop math, preach for a little bit, tell him about Jesus, then go back to calculus. So everyone knew where I stood. This guy came up to me and he showed me this quote that's a famous quote that most kind of atheists know and have kind of used in their arsenal when they get in arguments. It's, if God is so powerful, why doesn't he fix it? Or, if God is so loving, why doesn't he care enough to fix it? Therefore, since Bosnia is war-torn and I had to leave, God must not be powerful and or loving. And he did the mic drop as if he just, boom, Prove me wrong. Here's the reality that all of us need to understand. It's not a power thing. It's not a loving thing. It's a perspective and wisdom thing that I just don't have. Because there's a lot of stuff I'm disappointed with that I want God to fix. And I could claim, oh, it's just he doesn't have enough power, he doesn't have enough love. Or maybe I don't have the perspective that's wide enough or deep enough 
or wise enough to understand what's really going on here. God doesn't always act like we want. They were all healed in this moment, but that doesn't always end up being the case. What's crazy is this is a great passage. I'm going to preach like crazy. And then you fast forward the next couple chapters and Stephen is killed. So it's not always roses. It's not always great. Yet God can heal and he will heal because he is the redeemer and that's what he's doing here on earth. Here's the next truth we see out of this. Number two, he is ruling. If you have your Bibles, go to verse 17 there. I just have chuckled throughout this studying for this passage, because and Luke did a great job reading it, just at the irony and the comedy of this. So verse 17 says this. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. They signed an executive order. And they walked out with their crowd in suits, proud of themselves because they had just signed away. Not just one apostle, but all the apostles. Everyone who would write this New Testament, everyone who would build the church were now in jail because the high priest rose up and he used his power to stop this thing. Let's keep reading. But during the night... An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Executive order's been signed. Those boys are locked away for good. Angel goes, go do your thing. Let's keep reading. Now when the high priest came, those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Bring those... Guys to me, you know, the ones I locked up last night. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported. Uh, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened, we found no one inside. And then when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed, as they should be, wondering what this would come to. I have three sons. When you have sons, you wrestle a lot. We got this game we play. Drives my wife crazy because it's usually once bedtime's supposed to be, we push aside the coffee table and then we just get after it wrestling. We punch each other and wrestle each other and choke each other. And my sons have this new move. They tie me up. And my middle son, Roman, says, tape! And then my feet... Tape! What's hilarious is it's not chains or something substantial. It's tape. And it's not even tape, it's imaginary tape. So I'm imaginary taped together. And then they push me down, and then they put me under the piano and push the piano bench there and say, Stay in prison, monster dad. Tape! tape that's all this is the high priest I even love his name the high priest puts imaginary tape and they walk out because it's imaginary 
There's no power given to man or woman in leadership that God has not given to them to use exactly how God wants it used. You cannot stop God. It's imaginary tape. Psalm 2 gets at this. It says this. It's supposed to get our hearts ready for worship. And part of that is dealing with just the world we see. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is how a Christian is supposed to worship. By not counting basketballs, but looking at what they're supposed to see going on, and that God is in heaven right now laughing. Because there's imaginary tape being wrapped around the church globally. And nothing will stop God. And nothing will stop the church because nothing will stop God. It's all imaginary tape. The Passion of the Christ came out a while, probably 20 years ago now. I saw it in high school. And there's a couple scenes in there that just forever shaped me. And one in particular is Jesus during the the garden scene where he's just anguishing over going to the cross. He's kind of hunched over. He's just dealing with the reality that what he's about to do is suffer worse than anybody's ever suffered ever and for nothing he did. And the Satan figure kind of comes on the scene. And it's this weird like just bald figure. You can't really tell man or woman. Like what is this thing? And Satan's chirping at him and messing with him and taunting. Jesus is like trying to gain his strength. And then a snake comes on the scene. The same snake from Genesis 3 is what we're supposed to believe. The snake that messed this all up. And the snake that in Genesis 3, God said this, that snake will be crushed. And Jesus gets up and kills the snake. That's what happens to leaders and governments and people who think they can stop the church of God. The same thing that happened to Satan. In the book of Revelation, if you read it, it's a very intense book. Very, very intense. But it spends a big portion of it talking about Babylon. Babylon being the picture of society that is rejecting, rejecting God and has been rejecting. And society has been built up. There's been this God society that's being built up through his spirit. And then just a lot of people in societies and cultures in rejection of God. And Babylon is a picture of the ultimate rejection of God. And here's what it says about that Babylon. Alas, alas for this great city were all who had ships at sea and they grew rich by their wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Now, I don't know what sort of opposition you face, but it's there. Whether it's a mocking family member every time you try to move the conversation towards Jesus, or it's real substantial, like people in power 
can take power from you or remove you from your job because of your convictions and your faith or you move to another country where people can take your life because of your faith and your convictions. I don't know where you are on the spectrum, but here's what I know. God is laughing because it's imaginary power. Nothing will stop the church. Nothing. Here's our final point, number three. He is gathering in the midst of false messiahs and opposition of every kind. What is God doing? Let's read verse 27 here together. The captain brought them. They were afraid of being stoned, so they kind of said, Hey, my bad. Let's, can, can you come with me? They brought them. Verse 27, they set them before the council. And the high priest, almighty oh, imaginary tape high priest, questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to those things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. Verse 42 rounds out this whole passage. says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They had filled Jerusalem with the teaching of this Jesus. The book of Acts begins with this statement. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the world. And they had already knocked over the first domino. All of Jerusalem has been filled. God is gathering his people. He is on the move. He won't be stopped. No high priest, no king, no president, no people group will ever stop him. He is on the move. And Jerusalem is the first checkbox and it's been checked. It's been filled. And yet without opposition. You have your Bible, go to verse 33. They're not happy. When they heard this, they were in rage and wanted to kill them. Which, by the way, future, they will all be killed in pretty terrible ways. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, Gamaliel, yeah, teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel... Take care what you're about to do with these men. Before these days, Theodos rose up. He claimed to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. And he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew, drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. When they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This wise teacher who we find out later is actually one of the mentors of the apostle Paul, who's not a believer at this point, says, here's my advice. Let's just stop, wait, and see what happens. And what's happened? Christianity is the largest religion in the world. It has crossed cultural boundaries. 
that other religions have yet to cross. It started in Jerusalem. It spread to Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the world. I wrote down some stats from a guy named Rodney Stark who writes about Christian just numbers and how it's played out in in history. Says this, the religious landscape is particularly changing for the world's Christians. A century ago, 80% of the Christians lived in North America and Europe compared to just 40 today. Meaning, started in Jerusalem. It spread to the Middle East. It took over Europe. That's all those history books you read in school that you didn't care about, like me. What's happening in Europe is the Christianizing of that people group. And then a few people get mad and they're like, I want to do it this way. And they say, let's go cross the ocean. Boom, United States. And then we get Christianized over here. And what he's saying is happening now is what used to be the hub of Christianity is no more. And that's not a bad thing. That's an axe thing. That's what God wanted to happen. It's moving. And he says this. In 1980, more Christians were found in the global south than in the north for the first time in over a thousand years. Christianity is spreading. It's not saying in just Europe and here. Today, the Christian community in Latin America and Africa alone account for one billion people. Just about half of the Christians in the world. Latin America and Africa. Why? Because you will be my witnesses and you will do this here, here, and everywhere. And that's what's happening. Over the past 100 years, Christians grew from less than 10% of Africa's population to its nearly 500 million today. One out of four Christians in the world presently live in Africa. And that number will grow to 40% by 2030. A quarter of the people that call themselves Christians on this globe are now in Africa. And the other big chunk is Latin America. And now trailing behind is Europe in this place. Now, there could be some sin and some God's judgment on that, but it's a lot of just the Great Commission going out and the book of Acts being proved to be true. Christianity is spreading everywhere. Asia is also experiencing growth as World's Christianity Center has moved not only south but east. In the last century, Christians grew at twice the rate of the population in the continent of Asia. So here's the Asian population growing this fast, and Christians is doubling that, meaning... It's becoming more and more Christian. Asia's Christian population of 350 million is projected to grow to 460 million in the next 10 years. 10 years, there'll be another 100 million Asian Christians, according to conservative projections. He is gathering his people. He is moving. He is on the move and has been since the book of Acts, and he will not stop. And what's our role in this? Redemption Gateway. Luke Simmons planted this church out of East Valley Bible. Since then, we've joined and become redemption. But Luke Simmons had to prove, hey, do you know what you're doing? You're about to go plant a church. What are you doing? So he had to write proposals and get assessments and all this sort of thing. And on the front page of his proposal, what he saw God doing here was this. Second mile, that's what he originally called the church. Great name, he says. He always loves that name. It's a good one. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow Redemption Gateway. This thing is of God. This thing wasn't Luke's idea. This was the Holy Spirit moving in Luke and moving in his core leaders. He started with about 50 to come out to this community to be a gospel place for this community. 
If it's of man, it'll fail. If it's of God, this thing won't be stopped. And we're experiencing that right now. This thing is of God. And the moment it's not of God, it will be stopped by God's gracious hand. God is on the move. Unstoppable God. Nothing is impossible. When you watch the video, do you see you and your circumstances and your shortcomings and all these finite things you have to deal with? Or do you step back and see it differently and see God moving in this place? And God moving in this community. God moving in this book. And now it's reached us. That's what's going on. With that being said, here's the question. How should we then live? Francis Schaeffer asked this back in the 60s. Here's four things I think I get from this passage. If Jesus is really the redeemer of all things, we need to be praying for God's healing in this community. We can go door to door and tell people about heaven, hell, and the forgiveness of sins that's required for heaven. But we need to be praying for a broken, broken community. Where divorce and broken homes and drugs and whatever it may be. I just read an article on MSN. Uh, MSNBC, yeah. West Virginia. The funeral homes can't keep up with the amount of deaths coming from heavy drug use there. What's a West Virginia church to do? Tell a bunch of people how to get to heaven? Yes, but also be praying that God would redeem that and fix that and heal that. Same with this community here, with whatever issues we have. Pray that God would heal this place. And you'll be disappointed a lot, as I am, because he doesn't answer at all. But we see that he has the resources and the ability, and he does from time to time work in miraculous ways. Here's the second thing. If Jesus really is the only source of life, preach the gospel of life. Verse 20, it says this. This is what the angel told him. Not, let's, let's, let's re-vote on the high, let's do a voter recount on the high priest. Let's, nothing political. Here's what the angel says. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Meaning, you have the answers to everything. Go stand out there and tell people about it. I got to be honest, leading student ministry, I don't, I battle with insecurity and all that from time, especially with teenagers, because at least adults, like even if you're not a great teacher, you kind of smile and nod along and give me the benefit of the doubt and eh, clap once in a while. Teenagers, it's like, <laughs> so what's going on? It could be their heart's been changed permanently and forever. It could be. They just lost every family member. Like, I just never know what's going on. Like, what? So there's so many times where I get here and I think, let's just do something fun. Let's do something where I get an easy, let's just, let's just play video games. Because I know they'll be smiling, they'll like me, and oh, how's your youth pastor? He's great because we play video games. I want the people to ple be pleased with me and to say, and yet God almost every time says, What? If you don't get up there, where else are they going to hear this? And that's not to say parents are failing. Parents have the same issue. Where else do you hear the words of life in this world? Simmons went on a sabbatical like a year and a half ago. And one of it, he didn't go to church as often. And he was just kind of out of his normal routine. And that one of his big takeaways was, if you're just in this country, in this life, in this kind of pretty comfortable existence, you are never presented with the transcendent God who must be accounted to. 
You were just going about your motions, eating your meals, doing whatever's right here, right now. He called it imminence. We live in a world of imminence. Teenagers live in a world of imminence. Right here, right now. Who is going to bring God to bear on their lives? Go stand out there and tell them the words of life. The church. That's it. And they won't be stopped. Sorry for getting fired up. Number three. If Jesus rules, no matter how strong the opposition, rejoice if God chooses us to suffer for his name. Verse 41 says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Why? That they were counted worthy enough to suffer dishonor for his name. I don't know what suffering is going to look like. Lots of Christians like to go back and forth and say, oh, we're headed for doom or this world's too comfortable. America, there's no real, there's real suffering. And I don't know the extent of what's going to come. But when God chooses you to suffer or us to suffer, rejoice. Because he found you worthy enough to suffer for his name, the only thing in this world that really matters. And last one is this. If we are just his witnesses and not lawyers or whatever else you want to fill in, take a deep breath because we don't have to do the hard job. Meaning, Christians, it's not on us. Jesus got up and read the scroll of Isaiah to say, I'm fixing this world. And then he passed the baton to the church and said, now you be witnesses. That's it. Whenever he healed a guy in one of the gospels, almost every time he says this, go tell people what I just did. He didn't say, now you go and fix that other guy with that messed up leg. Go tell others what I just did. That's it. So we can take a deep breath and say, I'm just his witness. Parents, your kid can be on a rebellious track that just left you full of darkness and despair. Your job is not to fix them or to redeem them or to cure them. It's to bear witness to the one who has in your own life. That's it. Apostle Paul says this, book of Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? Rhetorical question. The answer is no one and nothing ever. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thanks for just a book like this that shows us how this church got started and that it really is about you. And we don't have to read our strengths into this story. Or read our weaknesses into the story. Read our sin or shortcomings or circumstances. But we can sit back and enjoy you, the main character, working in the person of Jesus and working through the hands of the apostles by the Spirit. And still working right here, right now, by your Spirit. God, let us be a fierce church that goes hard after this world and yet be a restful church who can sleep well at night because we are just your witnesses. God, let us carry that job title with reverence and joy, even as it leads us to suffering and opposition of all sorts. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.